politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Another Republican debate, Hunter Biden indicted again, and the corruption of the Academy. We will discuss all that and more on this episode of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today. In his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Kearns, and Jim Garrity. You're, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made In and ExpressVPN. More on them a little later on. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So we had another debate. It was billed as the final GOP debate of this cycle before the Iowa caucuses on Wednesday, but we've since learned there are going to be at least three more debates in January, barring new developments. So we're going to have to evaluate this one in the sense that there will be more coming. But the candidates generally seem to treat it like it was their last chance to make an impression on Republican voters ahead of the vote. And they did their best to leave one. Uh, It was a low rated debate, about 3.2 million viewers as far as I saw in in the last counting. A little lower even than the Ron DeSantis, Gavin Newsom debate on Fox. But it was still... Uh, important and valuable and very well moderated. Kudos to moderators Megan Kelly, Eliana Johnson, and Elizabeth Vargas. Uh, and it produced a lot to chew on. And I think we're going to take this candidate by candidate. So we're going to start with Ron DeSantis, who probably had his best debate, in my view. He ran like he was behind for the first time in a long time. He tended in these earlier debates to sort of hang back, uh, pro- lean into his message, his biographical uh, approach, and avoid getting in the mud. He didn't do that this time. He picked a lot of fights, many of them with Nikki Haley, some of which he won unambiguously. In my view, uh, others were more of a draw. But if you like Ron DeSantis, this is the Ron DeSantis you want to see. Correct, Jim Garrity. Yeah, um, I have seen three of the four debates. I was uh, over in Ukraine for the first one. So if, if DeSantis was bad in that one, It didn't leave much of an impression on me. It didn't look that bad in the clips that I saw afterwards. But I think he's been fine in all these debates. I think he's, you know, I I, people, ah, you know, he's not charismatic enough. I think he's plenty charismatic. I don't need uh, my president to be a good substitute host for the Tonight Show. He, you know, he's perfectly, and not only that, like he knows his stuff. He, you know, certainly knows his record in Florida. He's very proud of his record in Florida. He's got a lot of successes to point to. Uh, I think you're right that he mixed it up a little bit more with Nikki Haley. I think this is the first one where he acted like he was running a distant second, maybe in a couple polls here and there. He's looking like he's third. But um, I mean, I don't want to foreshadow my assessments of the other candidates, but like we've now spent six hours with these candidates just in the debates. We have a sense of their personality. It feels like so much more. Yeah. Well, we have a sense of their personalities. We have a sense of who they are, how they tend to do these things. And I think, you know, Three of the four had had a perfectly good nights, uh, and the fourth one, I think, will you can probably guess which one that is. Um, so yeah, the only thing you could you know if you want to quibble with is that you know he's running this distant second, uh, you know, third. I don't think what we saw last night or the other night was too different from what we'd seen from DeSantis before, and I still kind of wonder like if there's a sense of like, well, you know, Doctor Phil says if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting, and whether that's enough when you're running a distant second. Yeah, that's it. Charlie, I thought he hit all his marks, but he's running like he's behind because he is running like he's behind Uh, or he is behind. Does this debate have any impact on the state of the race? I think that's the problem, that the answer is probably no. I don't think that Ron DeSantis is in second or third or wherever he is, certainly behind Donald Trump, because he's not been good enough at debating 
because he's not been good enough at conveying his message. If you view politics as entertainment, then you can criticize Ron DeSantis for not smiling enough or for not knowing what to do with his hands or for striking peculiar poses when other people are speaking. If you ask me, is he Hollywood? No, he's not. But as Jim says, I don't think that's what he needs to be. And I don't think that's what most people want him to be. Certainly, it's not what I need him to be. He is not losing, and he is losing to Trump. He's not losing because he's underperformed at the debates. In my estimation, he's come out probably best of all of them in all four debates. He's losing because it doesn't seem to matter or because other things are privileged or because Trump persists in his hold on the GOP primary electorate. I would not, if asked to give notes to Ron DeSantis as a debater or stump speaker, suggest he do much different. Madeline, you can take the Ron DeSantis question wherever you want to take it, but I would just note briefly that there was this moment that appealed particularly to us at the end of the debate where the candidates were asked about their presidential inspirations. And Ron DeSantis picked Calvin Coolidge, which is really refreshing. However, it doesn't really seem to me to be reflective of how Ron DeSantis views the application of state power. Calvin Coolidge had a very uh, circumspect view of constitutional authority up to and including uh, not intervening when there's a giant national disaster, which was a big scandal in the Coolidge administration. And that's not Ron DeSantis's view of things. But he was talking to us in a way that he hadn't been previously. Yeah, he's trying to distinguish himself from other candidates, not least because the predictable response is Reagan at this moment in time. And he said something different and, as you say, refreshing. I think that to develop Charlie's point on um, the question of electability. This was, of course, the opening question, the way that the moderators framed it. And there was some criticism of that, although I understand it because this is the elephant in the room. And and the, unfortunately, addressing the elephant in the room right at the beginning of the debate didn't actually make it go away. It still was there for the whole debate is what, what difference does really any of this make? DeSantis, I think, gave a very strong performance, especially on foreign policy. And I think he needed to do that because he's very mealy-mouthed, especially when it comes to <clears throat> to Ukraine. I think he was strong in Israel and the need to confront Iran. Um, there was also, you know, it was this moment when Chris Christie was saying he won't answer the question directly. He won't say whether we should send um, troops into Gaza, American troops into Gaza to retrieve American hostages. And actually, uh, one of our colleagues, and I'm forgetting which one, maybe it was one of, of you, but... Um, made the point that that's not really how it would work if you were president. They wouldn't say, okay, yes or no, 90 seconds, should we do this incredibly complex manoeuvre? And I thought he he handled it very skillfully. I think one thing that maybe hurt DeSantis, and I'm sure we're going to get onto this, is the unexpected alliance he found himself in with Vivek Ramaswamy, um, which was probably quite useful against Haley. Uh, you know, Ramaswamy did... Uh, a lot of of work there attacking her in some counterproductive ways, which, as I say, we'll, we'll get on to. Um, but he was making some of the, or trying to make some of the same points about her being a big government candidate, um, attacking her on anonymity on the internet. There was the, the trans stuff as well. And I think that the line that just made me think, oh, I bet Ron DeSantis is cringing right now, is when Vivek said, no, Ron DeSantis is a good person. <laughs> <laughs> you think, um Okay, uh, if this is the moral judgment of this guy, I'm I'm not sure I'm winning. But um, but yes, I agree. He did he did well. All right, you teed up Nikki Haley, so let's go to her next. If you're overly invested in social media, you think she ruined her career last night. At least that's the reaction from Trump backers and very online political observers, up to and including Elon Musk, who declared her candidacy candidacy finished following that uh, that debate. I'm skeptical. She ran like she was ahead. Uh, sort of adopting the kind of um, DeSantis approach, uh, eschewing moments that she would otherwise have exploited in previous debates. She took a ton of fire, and she wilted under a lot of it. She sort of disappeared in the middle of the debate. I think she generally held her own. She got her applause lines in. She took a lot of gratuitous incoming that she might end up benefiting from later on and from sympathy. But otherwise, I thought it was a fine showing, but not her finest. Um, Charlie, what do you think? I think that the coverage that we see on Twitter 
and in some of the partisan press on the right bears no resemblance to the real world or how normal human beings experience politics. We've talked before about the preposterous characterization of Ron DeSantis that was arrived at by Trump supporters about 10 seconds after it became clear that DeSantis might be a threat to Trump. Suddenly, DeSantis was a globalist. He was an establishment lackey. He wanted to take us back in time to the supposed bad old days. And none of this is true. The same thing is now happening to Nikki Haley. (laughs) I understand that there are some problems with Nikki Haley from the perspective of a conservative who is upset with where the party was 15 years ago. There are also some problems with Nikki Haley from my own perspective, and I've articulated them on this podcast and in print. But Nikki Haley is now being reflexively described by the two online crowd as if she's some sort of far left-wing international communist. And she's not. So the, the, the silliness has come full circle and attached to her because she's doing quite well. As a debater, I also think she's fine. I think that the idea that she destroyed her career is wish-casting on the part of people who would like to see this become a one-on-one race between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. I would like to see that too. I would like to see it become a one-on-one race between someone and Donald Trump because I'm most interested in getting rid of Donald Trump and choosing a Republican who can win and then govern effectively. But if I had to choose, I would like to see this become a one-on-one between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean that Nikki Haley did badly at the debate. Nikki Haley doing bad at the debate might be a prerequisite to that happening, but that doesn't mean it happened. It didn't happen. She was totally fine. She's totally plausible. I would find her very annoying in certain narrow ways if she were the nominee or the president, but that doesn't change the fact that she was a credible candidate who was one of the two people on that stage who could plausibly be the nominee, win, and be fine as president. So I I see this, this line as really the product of desire rather than of analysis. Madeline, you mentioned the trans issues where she took a, Haley, took a ton of heat on her position on that, which is, a, and Chris Christie too, but mostly Nikki Haley, uh, which is more laissez-faire, I suppose, or just a little less interventionist. Um, she had to know that those attacks were coming. It really didn't seem like she was overly prepared for them. I don't think she came out on the other end looking better. Uh, The question is, does it really matter? But what's your view? Yeah, I think that it was strange in that she dodged that question. She also dodged the the name verification on the internet question as well. And as you say, these were totally predictable attacks. And so why why dodge it? Why, why just, or in some cases, just flatly deny your, your record and in, in what you've done and what you've said. Um, if you can't defend it, maybe you should consider changing your position. And this was actually a, a point of contrast between Haley and Christie on the, on the trans issue. Christie tried to articulate a defense. It was, it should be up to the parents. Um, you know, the DeSantis' response to that, what one I agree with was that, of course, but parents don't have a right to abuse their kids. And in any case, if you if you legislate this in such a way so that it's illegal as a medical practice, then it's just a question of parents can't access it. So it's not on the parents anyway. You're not penalizing them. But what Haley did was she sort of pivoted away from the question of gender reassignment surgeries for minors. And she she went towards the education point and said, actually, DeSantis didn't go far enough. I'm much stronger in the context of schools. Um, didn't really articulate her view on the the issue with with minors, this is obviously something that um, the the moderators, especially Megan Kelly, has has taken a great interest in, and so was was pressing hard on this issue. And I I don't think she did uh, well there. One one area where I think Haley did come out quite strongly is in um, making the case against Trump sort of indirectly. So she said, "You can't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos," and that's what Trump gave us. And she also uh, talked about his his how his policies with China and his trade policy uh, damaged the economy. And I think she made that case 
Um, despite Christie's accusation that none of them were addressing uh, the issue of Trump, I think she actually did make that case throughout her answers in quite a sophisticated way. Yeah, Jim. To that point, um, it wasn't. Yeah, it was the implicit contrast with Trump that Haley uh, struck, and also attacking him on China and deficit spending and deficit spending in his administration, which contributed to the the debt and the interest rates that we're paying now and inflationary pressure. Um, the assumption here is that that doesn't really matter to Republican voters. And there's been some attacks on Nikki Haley as as though she's she's running to be uh, somewhere in in Trump's orbit that she wants to be uh, plucked up by Donald Trump because she's avoiding attacking him. Um, I just don't think that's really necessary from a strategic perspective. She already strikes implicitly the strongest contrast with Donald Trump. You don't think you have to accentuate the negative necessarily. But to those who are making that attack, you would think that might have satisfied them or at least made them question the premise. Yeah. Look, I, I, I since writing the idea of a DeSantis-Haley or Haley-DeSantis unity ticket earlier this week, I've had a lot of folks say, Jim, you naive simpleton, don't you see that Nikki Haley is angling to be Donald Trump's running mate? And no, I don't see it. I, you know, she, uh, she has criticized Trump at various points. Now, has she criticized Trump as much as Christie? No. That's one of the reasons that Haley is rising and Chris Christie, uh, last I checked yesterday morning, is at 2.5% in the Real Clear Politics average of national polling. And just to put this in perspective, Tim Scott, who'd left the race a month ago, is still at 2%. So he's a half percent ahead of the guy who's not in the race anymore. You know, Nikki Haley is running a not all that different style playbook as Ron DeSantis of being a post-Trump candidate, not an anti-Trump candidate. And I don't think there's anything inherently immoral about that. I, I you know, if, if you are going to say, ah, you know, I'm not going to vote for Nikki Haley because she worked for Trump as ambassador to the United Nations. One, I think she was pretty good at that job. I think she, you know, probably one of the few people who came out of the Trump administration with their reputations largely intact or maybe even enhanced. Um, and, you know, I, I, don't, I, I, I my assessment is very similar to, to Charlie's. Like, Nikki Haley's always a good debater. She's always poised. She's always, you know, on top of her game. Now, if you want to say, uh, I mean, if you knew nothing else about this race, by the way, you probably, if you, when you watch this debate, you would have thought she was a front runner. You would have thought she was the one who was leading and that everybody was attacking her and everybody was nipping in her heels. <coughs> Are you, you know, she's probably either in third or, you know, in second here and there in places like New Hampshire, um, but still well behind Trump. She is, you know, and so when the idea of like when she got so, you know, constantly attacked and there's some argument about, you know, did she respond enough? And, you know, Chris Christie got to play the, the white knight role. I, I think we've seen Nikki Haley dunking on Ramaswamy like for six hours through these debates. I, I don't think another serving of that was going to change much of anything. And so I don't also I don't buy this idea put forth by DeSantis at one point that she's some sort of squish who always, you know, folds and knuckles under. We all remember her blessing hearts left and right over at the United Nations. Um, I don't think that she's some sort of, you know, spineless squish. And so I don't think she needed to go out, you know, and and uh, uh, rip into Ramaswamy. I think the idea, I'm not wasting my time with you, was a perfect response. And I, I think, I think she held it fine. I, I don't think anybody's going to say, well, I'm not going to vote for her because, you know, Ramaswamy says she wants to draft my kid to go die in Ukraine so that she can have a bigger house. <sighs> Yeah, I I would just say, I agree with all of that. I would just add that it's clear that Nikki Haley stepped on a rake with that anonymity on the online quip, Ooh. which wasn't reflective of a policy, but more Agreed. of a just general desire. Um, and it probably doesn't help her, although she framed it well in that debate. She discussed it as though it was just a personal preference as a mom, as a concerned mom. And I think that mm -hmm. might actually resonate. Nevertheless, it was a a foolish thing to say if it wasn't reflective of your own policy. And I would add that a lot of you online social media people who are uh, clinging to your anonymity, fine, but please don't compare yourselves to John Jay, James Madison, or Alexander Hamilton. Uh, you are not the author of the Federalist Papers, and I'll thank you to stop flattering yourselves in that fashion. We talked about Chris Christie, and I want to dwell on him for a little bit. I've always been, since the beginning of these debates, I've been impressed with Chris Christie's performance. I understand he's the most hated person in the Republican Party for a variety of reasons. I don't necessarily share them, but he is an incandescent debater. He's scintillating on that stage. 
and he took the scalpel that he wielded with surgical acumen, then once applied it to Marco Rubio, and uh, applied it to Ron DeSantis on a couple of occasions. He substituted the attack on Rubio's robotic devotion to talking points with this idea that Ron DeSantis won't answer questions. And I really think it hurt him because he won't answer the questions. He stuck him on that, on Trump, on Taiwan. He's right. He has a he has a tendency to pick out, like Donald Trump did once upon a time with those nicknames, to I- isolate a particular negative that maybe no one's put their finger on just yet and highlight it, shine, put a, hang a lantern on it and make everybody recognize what they otherwise weren't necessarily seeing. Um, the Washington Post post-debate survey was actually kind of interesting because it shows that while Chris Christie remains the most hated person in this field by a long shot, uh, he still went from a relatively low baseline among people who are considering supporting him to a pretty higher baseline from 21 to 29%, out, outshining all his other candidates. So he did something on that stage. It clearly doesn't matter, but he's having an effect on his own brand, if not the state of the race. Jim, am I right? Am I wrong? I, I think you're generally right, recognizing that uh, at this point, Chris Christie is a one-state candidate in New Hampshire. Last I checked, he was right around like 10%, 12 You know, it's, not, it's nothing to sneeze at, but that's certainly not going to be much more than probably fourth place. Um, the entire Chris Christie campaign was kind of predicated this idea that at some point he and Donald Trump would be on the same stage and that he would tear into Donald Trump the way he tore it, you know, the way he used Marco Rubio as a tackling dummy and that we would just see how Trump reacted and that nobody really has gone after Trump to his face that way. And that Trump would look, I don't know, would look scared or he'd look, for some reason, like we would see Trump in a new light because of this, you know, metaphorical body slam coming directly at him on a debate stage. And you kind of wonder if that's one of the reasons Donald Trump didn't do the debates, also besides being the heavy front runner. You're like, why, why give the opportunity for my opponents to look like they're on my level? Why give them the audience? Why run the risk of some exchange that looks really badly for me? Christie hasn't yeah. had that. And, you know, I don't think you get the same effect from really ripping into Ramaswamy, even if he's got it coming. I, you know, I, and the argument that like, I, I think Maddie had referred to something that I'd written, you know, would you authorize a rescue mission for the Americans held by Hamas? The correct answer, even if it's not the applause generating answer is it depends. It depends on the risks. It depends on the odds of reward. It depends on the risk to the troops. Like, you know, like there's all kinds of variables there that it's very hard to give a good answer to, if, you know, in this hypothetical scenario, if you don't know those variables. And when, you know, when DeSantis says, yeah, you know, 80's too old, look, Trump's in his late 70s. He would turn 80 as president. So I think we all kind of know he's saying Trump was, you know, without saying, yeah, Trump's too old. And Christie insisted it was not answering the question. Christie, every once in a while, goes into this, like, autopilot of, let me tell you here, folks, I got something I got to tell you. I'm the only one who's going to tell it to you straight. Everybody else on this stage, they're all, you know, shaking knees. He does it without really listening to what his opponent said. And saying, I'm the only one you can count on to give him straight, regardless of what the the, the other rivals have just said. Um, but I mean, by the way, look, this was this was Charl- uh, this was, you know, Chris Christie playing the role of Chris Christie to perfection. And it's often it's always very entertaining. It's always, you know, very magnetic personality on the screen. Um, it just is a guy who's well behind, and I don't think anything happened that's really gonna change it that much. And this may well be the last time we see Christie on a national debate stage. Madeline. What do Republicans see when they see Chris Christie? What is the average Trump supporting or non-Trump supporting or soft Trump supporting? Just general Republicans. What do they hear when they hear Chris Christie? Because it's not the substance of what he's talking about. It's it's something else. Yeah, I mean, I think to the, the Trump supporter, he's a Democrat in Republican clothing. Um, and, and what I mean by that is they, they think anybody who's not for Trump or anybody who's willing to attack Trump so so straightforwardly so head on um is saying what the democrats are saying is saying what the people we hate are saying and therefore um this person's a totally destructive force um he he i mean i think at least at one point there was actual booze (laughs) and you know it's it's hard not to admire somebody who can get on a stage and endure booze and just keep going and i i do I, i do admire christy even though there's um, a few things that, that I strenuously disagree with him on, trans being one of them. 
um, it's it's hard not to admire him. And I think that the point where you know Jim mentioned the him coming to Nikki Haley's um, rescue, the knight in shining armor, I was actually impressed by that uh, in terms of the politics of it because you know Vivek challenged um, Nikki Haley and and, and Christian saying, "You say you're your foreign policy experts, but you can you even name?" three provinces in eastern Ukraine and you know maybe they could maybe they couldn't maybe it's one of those things where you're you're 90% sure of the answer but like you don't want to get it wrong or maybe they just didn't want to take his bait whatever it was it was a very skillful move away from that to point out the fact that Vivek is obsessively um and and personally attacking Haley. And she is the only woman on that stage. And okay, look, I don't want to get into the identity politics of it, but it's just not a good look. It's just not a good look to get really personal and really nasty um, to to a woman like that. And I, and I think that that was a standout moment for me. I thought, you know, whether whether this is partly for your own advantage or not, this comes across as a move of of decency, and it's it's well stated. And I think um, you know, you saw Haley sort of smiling and, and and nodding and she obviously appreciated it as well um so yeah i i think i think christy is a, an admiral admirable guy and in, in, in lots of ways a very skilled debater but um he's he knows he's not really running for president and so why is he still here i think he's done everything he can to to spread the news that that trump is bad and, and needs to be stopped and so he should she, he should step aside Charlie, was that effort to run block for Nikki Haley a prelude to something like uh, an effort to throw his whatever support he has in New Hampshire behind her? That would help her immensely, but it does seem rather out of character. Perhaps. Can I put a word in for strongly disliking Chris Christie? Of course. Chris Christie's a really good debater. He was a pretty good prosecutor from what I understand. And when he was the governor of New Jersey, I used to like watching him debate and heckle. We all enjoyed his truth-telling to teachers' unions and to the mainstays of the high-tax deficit-running policies that New Jersey has implemented for years. But Chris Christie doesn't get to play that role anymore because Chris Christie was a Trump lackey. I just don't want to hear it from him. I can remember where I was when Christie endorsed Trump. Christie knew who Trump was. We all knew who Trump was back in 2015, 2016. Trump's flaws, problems, psychopathic tendencies even were clear. Others had outlined them. National Review had spent months writing about them. And Christie went for him anyway. And then he spent years trying to get further into the orbit of Trump. He desperately wanted to be picked for a cabinet role. He did everything he could to make himself eligible. And now he's posing as this pure... I don't know as a what. A a, a pure one-state presidential candidate? This is a huge problem for me. You want to talk about not answering questions? Ask Chris Christie what it was that led him to change his mind on Trump, that led him to flip from obsequious sycophant to whatever he is now. He won't answer it. I know this because I've done it myself. Suddenly, it's hamana, 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 hamana. I don't think he gets to do it. I'm sorry. It's not that what he says is necessarily wrong. It's not that he's not good at it. It's not that he's not talented in his own way. It's that he understands perfectly the role that Trump plays in the Republican Party, and he understands perfectly what you have to do in the Republican Party if you wish to maintain your political career and do good. Because he did it himself. And now that he's not really running for anything, now that he's at the end of his political career, now that he's not in a position to have to wonder whether or not his state will benefit if he plays it cool with Trump, whether his aspirations will be dinged if he stays on the fence and tries to prevail. Now he's in that position, then he has the temerity 
to talk to everyone else as if they lack character. Give me a break. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. He's burned his credibility with just about every constituency in the Republican Party he's trying to appeal to now at various stages of his career, his post-gubernatorial career. Uh, You have heard us all beating up on Vivek over the course of this segment, but now we're going to really give it to him. You can tell we're all champing at the bit to try to get in on the Vivek train. He turned in probably the most cloying performance of the entire cycle, which is really saying something. Not only with the gratuitous attacks on Nikki Haley as a corrupt fascist neocon who wants her kids to die, and the incomprehensible gotcha question about some sort of provinces in Ukraine where people want to send American troops, and then when they look at him, they look at him funny with a blank stare. He's like, look, I gotcha, but nobody knows what the heck you're talking about. And he turned in this impressively deranged litany of conspiracy theories that he's endorsed in the space of I, I, maybe two or three breaths. Uh, it was... January 6th was an inside job. The 9-11 commission was a cover-up. Great replacement theory, which is this idea that Democrats are importing immigrants, pliant immigrants who will uh, outvote native-born uh, Americans. Uh, that's actually the Democratic Party's platform. And Donald Trump not only won 2020, but he had that election stolen from him and 2016 somehow. Even though he won it, it was nevertheless stolen from him. It was a, an impressive performance from the perspective of someone who I suppose is horribly addle-brained. But I don't know if anybody else really found it that appealing. What is the strategy here, Madeline? So I think that he tries to sort of channel Trump's nastiness. Um, And Trump has a very rare and unique talent where he has this kind of comic timing with things he says. And even when he's being absolutely vile, it's sort of funny in a very dark way. Vivek does not have that talent. Um, And yet I think that's what he's aspiring to do. I think he's trying to to give the the people who love Trump um, something to see in him where they can say, ah, that's the same quality. I I like this guy. Um, And and just an illustration of how petty and ridiculous and clownish it actually is, is, was was the part where he he writes on his, his paper, Nikki Haley equals corrupt and sort of holds it up. And you just think this is, this is, there should be a rule against props in debates. I always understood there was a rule against Mm. props, which is much like every other RNC rule, not enforced. Right. Yeah. No, it's just completely, uh, completely ridiculous. Um, And yet, and yet the, the difficulty with somebody like that is that they do tend to dominate. They do tend to sort of attract a lot of the attention, a lot of the memorable moments from that debate. Same with the other debates. Is Vivek attacking someone? How they respond? You know, obviously Haley had decided that calling him scum in the last debate wasn't really very effective. And she obviously decided just to sort of be stoic and, and, and stand there and take it, which I think was actually effective because it just made him look so egregious. Um, and it was just so, so one-sided. The, the attacks were so one-sided. Um, but yeah, what, what is his strategy? I think his strategy is... Uh, he's he's trying to he's trying to run in the Trump lane, or or certainly um, you know if, if Trump ends up being the nominee, I think he's trying to curry favor favor with him, um, and so he's trying to bring out all of Trump's worst qualities that are advantageous to Trump, and uh, and use them so that they'll be advantageous to him. Charlie, somebody who takes a really uncharitable view of the Republican Party would say. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy has been traveling the country, he's writing books, he's holding court with all these Republican audiences. If he's endorsing all these conspiracy theories, if he's encouraging all these self-destructive instincts in the part of the GOP, he's tapped into something. This is what they want. doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Polls, but is there something to it? Well, yes and no. That is a, an idea that I myself have wondered about. Is his performance the product of what he's seen while out there on the campaign trail? The problem with that theory, the reason it doesn't work, is that people hate him. So when he does it, it doesn't actually have the desired effect. So it seems unlikely to me that he would hear these things and then feed them back, and then the people from whom he heard them would say, well, how dare you say that? So no, I I don't think that that is right. I think that one of Vivek Ramaswamy's biggest problems, and there are many, is that he just doesn't know how he comes across. I've become increasingly convinced of this. He has a conception of himself in his head that is not matched by his 
affect on the stage, but he doesn't know it and he can't know it. I have thought from the beginning that he was a fraud. He is one. But I think he's a naive fraud. I think he looks in the mirror and sees someone who is witty and charming, whose jokes land, who conveys his point, who sits firmly within the mainstream, who might even be a trailblazer. He's none of those things. He comes across as a snake oil salesman. Jim, I heard Van Jones say that, uh, look, you know, Trump's 80, but here's his mimic here. And he's younger than me. He's in his late 30s. He's going to be around for another half century. But is he? Um, I guess it depends on how you mean by, you know, how is he going to be around? I mean, he will be with us on this planet, God willing, hopefully. But, yeah, he, you know, he seems to be political in force? fine health uh, for that. Look, from the beginning, I thought, Vivek, and by the way, he gets annoyed if you mispronounce his name. So let's all remember, it's not Vivek, it's Vivek, as in rhymes with fake. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, I I thought he wanted Sean Hannity's job. I thought he was running for president to build up his name recognition, to become a more well-known figure, to build a fan base, and that from that he would get some primetime slot at Fox News. Judging by this last debate, he's not, ha- you know, aiming for Hannity's job or Laura Ingram's job. He's he's aiming for uh, Alex Jones's job. Uh, he wants to be the chieftain of all of the um, uh, conspiracy theorists of the country. I know every conspiracy theorist looks in the mirror and they see Fox Mulder staring back, the one who sees behind the curtain, the one who's not one of the sheep, the sheeple, handsome and brave and willing to defy the crowd. At best, they look like the lone gunman. They always look like a bunch of weirdos and freaks who you'd really, you'd, you'd like walk on the other side of the street to avoid talking to them. Um, one of the things I, I, I think this is the first debate where Ramaswamy really was doing damage to the format because we on this podcast have discussed funding for Ukraine and we're probably going to talk about it a bit more later. Like there's a legitimate issue to be you know argued about there. Should, you know, should we keep sending aid to Ukraine? How much should be military? Is there other kinds? Should we be spending uh, you know, economic aid, you know, humanitarian aid. Are there, you know, certain weapon systems that we're running low on and we can't provide anymore? And I think those are very reasonable objections to have, and we can have that discussion. But when Ramaswamy begins by saying that uh, Nikki Haley is a fascist neocon warmonger, and she wants your, ch- first of all, he accused her and Biden of wanting to send U.S. troops to Ukraine. She's never said this. Biden has never said this. Like he just made up a position, stuck it to her, and then tried to make the argument about we shouldn't do that. But nobody's proposing we should do that. At the very beginning of the conflict, there was a little bit of a talk about how the U.S. should enforce a partial no-fly zone. I guess you'd call that a some-fly zone. Uh, I was very skeptical of this because I think a partial no-fly zone is like being a little bit pregnant. Either you're either you're flying or you're not flying. And if you're not, you know, I don't really see any middle ground in there. But anyway. No, there are no U.S. troops fighting in Ukraine. No one has called for it. I've been over there. I've talked to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians do not want Americans to come over there and fight for them. They are out for vengeance. They are going after the guys who raped their grandchildren and their grandmothers and everybody in between. They want to do this themselves. All they want from us is the weapons. Anyway, you know where I stand on that. But we can't have that productive debate if it begins with Nikki Haley, who's, by the way, whose husband is currently in the U.S. Army National Guard and deployed in Djibouti. Over in Africa, the idea that she's some crazed warmonger who wants your children to die so that she gets a, a uh, live in a nicer, fancier house. That is absolute horse. I'm going to say pucky. You know, I want to say another word. And it just does damage to that debate. If we have to argue about this nonsense that is completely unrelated to the actual facts on the ground, instead of debating what the actual path ahead ought to be. Unfortunately, he's probably going to be with us for as long as he wants to spend money on this fruitless political career he's trying to cultivate. Um, Let's take a minute to step back and hear from one of our first sponsors today, ExpressVPN. Happy holidays, by the way. It is the season of giving, but you've already given enough to your internet service provider. If you haven't been using ExpressVPN every time you've gone online this year, you're paying too much. And I'm not talking about the enormous internet bill you pay every month. Every time you go online without ExpressVPN, your provider, like AT&T or Verizon, can see and log every single website you visit. 
Yes, that includes the websites you visit in incognito mode. On top of overcharging you, they're already legally allowed to sell your browsing activity to third-party advertisers for huge profits. That's why you should be done with your internet service provider. Go online with ExpressVPN. It couldn't be easier to use. Fire up ExpressVPN on any of your devices, your phone, your laptop, whatever. Tap one button to connect. That's it. Unlike your internet service provider, ExpressVPN is committed to your privacy. Their privacy policy even has been audited by third parties, so you can rest assured that your data is not being logged by anyone. You've given enough to your ISP this year. It's time for you to start taking. So take back your internet privacy today with the VPN rated number one by TechRadar and Mashable. Visit expressvpn.com editors and get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash editors, expressvpn.com slash editors to learn more. So guys, this week we got some really uh, blockbuster testimony, I want to say. It didn't tell us anything we didn't already know, but it sure moved the needle. This week, when the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn testified before a House committee on the surge of anti-Semitism in American, on American campuses since the uh, October 7th massacre. The performance that these presidents turned in was uh, pretty abhorrent, and it was, we don't have to speculate on that, it was met with all but universal condemnation across the political spectrum. Uh, these presidents, they dissimulated, they smirked, they condescended, they avoided every opportunity to advance something resembling decency in front of Congress. First, Charlie, I want to get your impressions of this hearing and whether you are surprised by the response from partisans on the left to it. My response is that all three of the college presidents lied and that that's the problem we're facing. I would prefer that every university had a really broad approach to free expression and inquiry. I understand the founder of National Review had a different view. I respect that. It's not mine. I would like to see universities be temples of openness. And if they were temples of openness, I could see a case for a broad enough conception of free speech to accommodate even some light genocide endorsement. But that is not what our universities are like. It is not the position that they've taken, and it does not describe Harvard, MIT, or Penn. And the fact that the presidents of those colleges told Congress that it did is outrageous. It's a lie. It's not true. What we have is a system predicated upon the game Calvin Ball, where if the target of the opprobrium is Jewish, and the person throwing the bombs is favored, then the policy is tolerant. But if the target of the opprobrium is someone who is favored, and the person throwing the bombs is disfavored, well, then we see all manner of crackdowns. Now, you don't have to take my word for this. Look at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, Harvard University was ranked this year by FIRE as the worst college in the United States for free speech. Zero out of 100 was Harvard's score. The second worst college in the United States for free speech was Penn. On every measure, these colleges do not do anything approximating what their presidents have promised that they do. That's the problem here. What we have is an exception for Jews which is classic anti-Semitism. I do not want to see an exception for Jews in the other direction. I don't think because Jews have been the most targeted group in human history, there should be a carve-out, either in the First Amendment or in our cultural respect for free speech, for Jewish people. But I certainly am not going to praise university presidents for only sounding like John Stuart Mill when the question is Jews. <laughs> that is absurd. 
either have a standard and stick to it or admit that you don't and deal with the consequences. But we cannot have in this country a set of elite universities that has the most sensitive, exquisite, narrowly tailored conception of what constitutes hate speech or harassment, has all of these abstract theories about how it is imperative to limit discourse on campus to make sure people feel included and welcome, except when someone shouts for intifada or says from the river to the sea. And that's what we have. So my problem with the presidents of those colleges is that they were lying and that they knew that they were lying and that they are, in a sense, propping up an ideology that wants to protect absolutely everyone except the one group that has been most persecuted in the history of the human race and that that's revolting. Madeline, the backlash has been real and fascinating from my view. In particular, there's this viral moment from these hearings in which um, the presidents were asked uh, uh, what constitutes a violation of their free speech clauses, or in particular, if we're hearing these calls for what amount to genocidal uh, action on the part of students, this one solution to the Jewish question, um, you know, a variety of other incendiary remarks. And all of them refused to answer the question. And not 24 hours later, we saw, for example, Harvard's Claudine Gay and University of Pennsylvania's Liz McGill issue these statements of just festooned with theatrical resolve that was not in evidence in the hearing, where they're resolved to fight anti-Semitism. And uh, it's only because the bottom has fallen out for them. The donors are pulling out, their boards are turning on them, their personal status and their personal incomes are now on the line, and that seems to have focused the mind wonderfully. But previously, they just felt there were no consequences for this kind of conduct. And now there are. Is that is that really it? Is it that parochial? I'm afraid so. <laughs> Certainly that's that's my view. I mean, I think that you, you could take, uh, I think it would be naive, but you could take the view that, <clears throat> okay, well, it's better late than never, they are now uh, committed to a broader understanding of free speech. Let's see how well they apply it going forward to to all sorts of um, relatively mainstream views. Um, but of course, that isn't as as Charlie notes, as you've noted, that isn't what's actually going on here. It's just it's just completely disingenuous. Now, when William F. Buckley wrote his God and Man at Yale, um, the extended title of that is the the superstitions of of academic freedom, and he basically thought that it's not possible that, that this thing is a pretense from the beginning it's not possible to have pure complete academic freedom um, and not least because part of a university's job is moral formation character formation the kinds of young men and young women that you would want to produce so they would go out into the world and and uh, have a positive influence and so they they do have values and, and Harvard um, speaks about those values and certainly is prepared to take stands on those values in other contexts and so what you have here is that this is a uh, this is a, a more tolerable, certainly from the, the perspective of the, of the elites, anti-Semitism is, is more tolerable than racism. It's more to tolerable than their definition of transphobia. And this is not a sustainable position because the, the backlash is, is significant. There are a lot of, of Jews and a lot of them who are, are willing to support universities and, and, and are generous towards universities um, who will not put up with this. And it's in, in response to that pressure and only that pressure um, that, that makes any any difference in this. And it's depressing, but it does kind of expose the, the moral bankruptcy of, of the whole project. Jim, maybe one or more of these university presidents may find themselves defenestrated from their roles but a cynical reading of that is it's just butt covering. It's not going to change anything. This is just uh, aesthetics and you know, trying to make a cosmetic change in order to soothe frayed nerves. Is that uh, is that too cynical a reading? No, I, it's probably reasonably accurate. Still, given the choice between there being no consequences for their testimony and these consequences for their testimony, I'll take this option. Obviously, we all like to see the uh, atmosphere, the culture, the prevailing attitudes on these campuses dramatically change. Um, and I don't have a lot to add to uh, what what uh, Charlie and Maddie said. I just got to point out, this broke through into the mainstream discourse in a way that very few campus controversies do. 
Uh, one of my favorite sports talk commentator guys is Rich Eisen, uh, who's got a pot. And he, you know, uh, well, he is a person who's Jewish, doesn't really talk about politics very much. His show is sports. And but this bothered him so much. He spent about five minutes. He talked about it. He linked to, you know, don't blink kids. I'm going to say something nice about Robert Kraft. Uh, Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, is promoting this campaign called, you know, Stop Anti-Semitism. He put up a link to it and you could just, he just got up from the, his desk where he podcasts, much like we do, and and he just walked away furious. Like the talking about it had gotten him so angry that these university professors, uh, these university presidents had said, well, is calling for genocide violation of the code of conduct? Well, it depends upon the, the context. Let me paraphrase Ghostbusters. If somebody says if calling for genocide violates your code of conduct, you say yes. You can't think of the content. No, no, they, but they called for genocide in a good way. They called for genocide in a positive, uh, uh, you know, life affirming. No, genocide is bad. That's really, really uncontroversial. At minimum, you'd like to see the professor say, those, uh, those university professor, uh, president say, we really frown upon that kind of talk. It's, uh, we, we discourage calling for the genocide of the Jews or anybody else for that matter. Um, you know, and particularly on college campuses where they'll call out the SWAT team if, you, God forbid, you misgender someone. So, look, we've all seen this. We've all known this college, this atmosphere was on college. It's just gotten really egregious. And the other thing that I think is these board of, of trustees and everybody's perfectly uh, uh, justified in calling for their dismissal over this is that from the overall tone of their, their testimony to the Hill, they think they're doing fine. They think the atmosphere on college campuses is hunky-dory. They don't see anything that really needs to be fixed or anything needs to be changed. So when you are that blind, that defiant, there's almost no choice but to toss you out. It's pretty obvious through, for years now that this uh, uh, intersectional uh, ideology that was retailed on campus was all nonsense, and it was tolerated because non-faculty administrators were afraid of the activist class. They were not afraid of the targets of their discrimination, whites, men, heterosexuals, and of course, Jews. There were no consequences, and now there are. And the lesson that's being conveyed here is that the balance of terror has to be uh, equal on both sides. I don't think that's gonna produce a more uh, a better equilibrium in the future, but these are the conditions that these administrators have ushered in. Um, the professional standards of our elite universities may have fallen off, but you don't have to worry about your standard of cookware if you're using made-in products, which is why we're turning to our next advertiser, made-in. If you're considering the pros and cons of different cookware brands, you should know that made-in has more of the pros. Pros like Tom Caliccio, Nancy Silverton, Brooke Williamson, and many other professional chefs who all trust their cooking to made-in cookware. Fact is, Made In has a long-standing relationship with professional chefs. The company evolved from a 100-year-old kitchen supply business and works with multi-generational makers to craft each piece. They make exactly what demanding chefs are looking for, including a wide-ranging selection of curated products from carbon steel to stainless clad, plus plateware, glassware, and more. But perhaps the biggest pro is that Made In is sold online and delivered to your door, all for a fraction of the price of other top brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, invest in made-in cookware. Once you try it, you'll be a pro made-in too. Editors listeners get 10% off full-priced items from made-in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madein, M-A-D-E-I-N, cookware.com slash editors. New York, more news from Hunter. We got some Hunter news. The president's son was indicted again in the state of California, this time for the alleged failure to pay about $200,000 in income taxes. The charging documents can be fairly described, I think, as hilarious, albeit grimly so. Uh, prosecutors included a summary of what Hunter spent his uh, hard-earned funds on rather than paying his taxes, including hundreds of thousands of dollars to, quote, various women and, quote, adult entertainment. Apparently, he even tried to Right off a $10,000 membership in an adult establishment as a business expense, which maybe, I mean, the guy has a lifestyle brand that he's promoting here, I, I suppose. Uh, Jim, did you have a chance to take a look at this and see the hilarious fallout from it? I did. And uh, today's morning jolt is all about it. And this has got to be the most sordid uh, indictment you'll ever read about um, somebody not paying their taxes that they owe. Um and by the way, just, you know, just a general NBC style, the more you know, 
useful public service announcement. If you're going to go on a really bad bender with your dealers and with prostitutes and with all manner of sordid people and in a state of bleary addiction, go from one $10,000 hotel to another throughout Southern California for a stretch, do not later claim all those stays at those hotels as business expenses. Um, also, it appears that according to the indictment, uh, Hunter Biden did sleep with prostitutes and then later claimed those expenses as a business expense. The IRS frowns upon that. You're, you're, you're not going to get away with that one. Um, so at this moment, inevitably, somebody, you know, listening to this podcast, well, this has nothing to do with Joe Biden. Well, hold on a second. Joe Biden has spent almost his entire political career calling for harsher penalties for drug use, possession, and dealing. Hunter Biden has said that he's been an addict for decades. He's broken those laws many, many times, and he has never suffered any legal consequence. That's a legitimate political issue. Joe Biden has spent decades attempting to restrict gun possession, the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding gun owners. So it matters if his son lied to a federally licensed gun dealer, made a false claim on a federal firearms application, and had possession of an illegally obtained gun, all of which have penalties of up to years in prison. And of course, to this day, Joe Biden insists, you know, the problem with our country and the reason we got this debt is the rich just aren't paying their fair share. It matters if Hunter Biden didn't pay his taxes. And the idea, ah, this has nothing to do. Oh, yes, it does. Because Hunter Biden's entire life has been this endless demonstration that laws are for the little people. If you have a famous last name, you get to escape the consequences of not just your addiction, but your bad decisions and your bad actions that violate the law over and over again. You know, I, I, so I, I could rip into, I could point out that like Kamala Harris doesn't have this problem. She's not 81 years old. Gavin Newsom doesn't have this problem. Joe Biden brings really unique weaknesses to his reelection pit. But I'll just make one last observation. Like we can argue about Joe Biden's fatherhood skills and whether he's enabled his son's bad decisions over and over again. I think there's a strong case you can make for that. But I just kind of look at Hunter Biden right now and say, Hunter, your dad's 81. He's in rough shape. He's trying to be president of the United States, which is a tough job for anybody. And at this moment, when he's running for re-election and he's got, you know, two wars overseas and problems at the border and, you know, everything's like this, oh, you keep screwing up. You keep creating more problems for your dad. And you keep insisting this is all part of a vast right-wing conspiracy. Could you take responsibility for once in your life? Could you find it in yourself just once to try to make your, your dad's life easier instead of harder? Is it, is it too much to ask? Apparently it is, Greg. Greg, who am I talking to? Noah. <laughs> You're well, right. You tell him on verbal autopilot. That's all right. It was a wonderful autopilot. I was right along for the ride the whole time. Madeline, I'll give you another way in which this touches on Joe Biden. Whatever you make of the tax case, it's unlikely any of this would have been brought absent the testimony of IRS whistleblowers Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler. Hunter's prosecutions are an indictment of how the Biden administration attempted to sweep all of this under the rug. Uh, and you can go on and on. Uh, Andy McCarthy has a great piece up on nationalreview.com right now. You can go read it where he illustrates this point vividly. Uh, but that is directly an indictment of the president's administration, not his personal conduct, but maladministration, a failure to uphold the laws that he has sworn to execute as president. No? Yeah, no, definitely. In fact, that's why it's sort of maddening to hear um, liberal commentators talk about how if his name wasn't Biden, um, he wouldn't be, th this wouldn't be happening, that he wouldn't uh, be persecuted as if like, as you say, there's some right-wing conspiracy, there's um, like Rep Republicans have basically strong-armed the, the DOJ into indicting him again, when actually, of course, the reason this is coming out the way it is, is because this sweetheart plea um, collapsed under scrutiny. And uh, and because David Weiss dragged his feet for for years to allow the uh, the clock to run out on the statute of limitations, and and so now now it's all coming out drip by drip, and um, it's pretty sordid stuff. Um, and I think Andy has a a great piece. Um, I think it came out yesterday where he he's he's making the case that you know if you compare this to the way Alvin Bragg's prosecuted. Um, or, or brought the indictments against Trump on, on the base of the hush money with the porn star. Equally sorted, sorted, by the way, but, you know, 
not clear what laws have been broken, and that's clearly partisan. Um, and the Democrats now are, are learning what it's like to um, to live on the, the bottom rung of the, the two-tiered justice system. Um, and so, yes, there will be partisan motivation to uh, to really go after Hunter Biden and to to uh, embarrass and uh, expose Joe Biden's uh, level of complicity in this. But um, at the same time, uh, as, as Jim says, it does actually matter <laughs> if he didn't pay his taxes. And this is this is a problem um, that, that he needs to be held accountable for. Agree with all of that. We're running a little short on time, so I'm going to give you a quick NR Plus plug right now, which you need to subscribe to if you are not already. It is vitally important. NR Plus is your way around our metered paywall, and it's your access to not just all of the, the writing that we've been referencing over the course of this podcast, but all are uh, the history of uh, National Review writers' uh, analysis and vital opinions uh, that help you navigate the political environment and give you the arguments you need to uh, to convince your skeptical friends, loved ones, neighbors of what your values are, what your priorities are, and what American uh, government, the American government, should pursue. And uh, so you should get off the fence. Stop, you know, stop opening up those incognito windows. Stop stealing your mom's password. We know what you're doing. It's not worth it. It's just a couple of bucks and you will have access to the entire National Review Library and you will be satisfied with your decision to contribute to the advancement of the values that National Review stands for. Charlie had to run, but we're going to do a couple of quick light items real quick. Madeline, what do you have going on this weekend? Or what did you do this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm just along <laughs> for the ride here. Tell me what's going on. Uh, so my parents are visiting and we, uh, me, my parents and my husband, we went to go see a show and it was The Play That Goes Wrong, which is a British farce, um, highly, highly enjoyable. It is, as you would expect it to be, uh, a play that goes wrong. So there's a kind of amateur, it's, it's not actually amateur, it's professionals, but they're the, the idea is there's an amateur theatre company putting on a, a whodunit and it's just uh, calamity after calamity. It just it, It's not particularly highbrow, but it's very funny. So enjoyed that. I haven't seen the property, but uh, I've heard good things about it. Jim, what are you up to? Well, uh, this is my second editor's episode of the week. I talked about the upcoming holiday party on Tuesday. So I'm going to turn to the other great joy in my life. Um, there's a site called Tankathon, which you know monitors the draft order for every league. And it's late season NFL. The Jets are all but mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. They stink. And so thankfully, in most sports leagues, the worse your record, the higher you pick in next year's draft of eligible players. And right now, the Jets pick six. And why am I so cheerful and exciting? Well, because one of the teams ahead of them, the New England Patriots, who are used to having two decades of excellence at end of the Super Bowl, have been really lousy lately. In fact, they're particularly bad this year. And heading into last night's game against the Steelers, they were 2-10, and ten, which is going to put them like second. Now, they just won a game last night. They beat the Steelers. My apologies to my Steelers fan friends. But this puts them at 3-10. and ten. The Jets play New England later this year. There's an excellent chance the Jets will lose to them, meaning that they could actually have the tiebreaker against New England. So right now, the Jets are picking sixth in next spring's NFL draft. They're a terrible team. They have an excellent chance of losing the rest of their games all this year. They play Washington, one of the teams ahead of them. So conceivably, the Jets could be picking third, fourth, fifth in the draft, and then you know, when all is said and done. That's what I have to look forward to these days, and that's what's putting me in a good mood. It's a rebuilding year for Jim's happiness. <laughs> <laughs> you take your victories where you can get them, I guess. Um, mine's sort of similar to that, and it doesn't sound like a light item, uh, because everybody in America is sick including my chan my children and my wife. That might not sound like a, a really jolly event, but it's good insofar as everybody tends to get sick uh, on Christmas or next week, which is really too close to Christmas for comfort. So I'm hoping that everybody's getting the illness out of the way early in December so we might actually avoid coming down with something when it really matters. Um, moving on to our editor's picks for the week. Jim, what is your pick? Well, I could probably pick Andy McCarthy every single week, but uh, after you read today's Morning Jolt, be sure to go to read Andy McCarthy's uh, assessment of the indictment of Hunter Biden. The point that just kind of jumps out off the page and just seems huge, I'm just going to quote Andy directly here, quote, just four months ago, the same David Weiss tried to bury the same tax case against the same Hunter Biden 
offering him a no-jail plea to two puny misdemeanors, a sweetheart deal so out of the ordinary that Weiss's minions could not answer a judge's simple questions about it, and that the ever-entitled Hunter's defense lawyers foolishly blew up over fear of a hypothetical prosecution on tougher charges that Weiss patently had no intention to bring. In other words, it really, you know, he says it goes on, it's impossible to square Weiss's slamming of Hunter in the new indictment with the blind eye turned towards Hunter in the failed plea bargain. Uh, you know, Andy is always worth reading, but this is the sort of thing you can really, you know, sink his teeth into. Everybody should check it out. Madeline, Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? Uh, I like to piece by Michael, uh, cancel the Ivies. I don't, I don't know whether I agree with it, but it's just a very good um, articulation of the of the argument uh, that that William F. Buckley uh, put forward in, in God, Man, and Yale about the response, morals, responsibilities of university and and uh, where it should draw the line. I'm going to pick the absent Rich Lowry's syndicated column, The Dumbest Betrayal, um, where he makes the case that cutting off military aid to Ukraine would be, quote, a crime and an incredibly self-defeating blunder. He makes a compelling case that the return on investment from our modest financial contributions to Ukraine's defense with no blood spilt uh, in the effort to degrade one of America's most potent and revanchist enemies is a really good investment, and it would be silly and foolish to decline our obligations to Ukraine. That is going to do it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Madeline. And thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. And thank you to our advertisers, ExpressVPN and Made In. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We are the editors, and we'll see you next time.